This podcast is made possible by Workday and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is B. Ordonez, CFO with OTC Markets Group, Inc., and you are listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 653. And so I woke up one morning, called my controller in a bit of a, in a sweat and a panic and said, hey, we got to get this done a lot faster because I, I, I think I see the program playing out and it's not going to be pretty. So we took a, a very beautiful 90 to 120 day plan, ripped it up and I said, we're going to do this now. And so we effectively you know, looked at a lot of those long pole items uh, that would have taken us you know, a couple you know, months, two to three months to, to execute on and started thinking about ways to sort of rein them in a lot faster, which, which we did and, and really extract the synergies that were part of the calculus as well for, for making that acquisition. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak with CFO Chad Cohen of Adaptive Biotechnologies. It was happenstance that first brought together Chad Cohn and the Robbins brothers. The two brothers who had founded one of the Seattle area's most promising biotech startups. The three men found themselves seated beside each other and buckling up for a four hour plus road trip up to Whistler, British Columbia. At the time, Cohn was CFO of Zillow Group and had logged an eventful four year tenure that had kicked off with the real estate company's IPO, followed by the subsequent acquisition of 10 different companies, including most recently, the acquisition of Zillow rival Trulia. It was only a short time later that Cohn agreed to serve as audit chair for the promising biotech firm that had been eyeing the public markets. It was a role that swung open the door to having Cohn join Chad and Harlan Robbins as Adaptive Biotechnologies CFO. Our discussion with Chad Cohen begins after this. In a world that's always changing, one thing never does. Your need to adapt, your need to evolve, your need to grow. That's why we built Workday, a single finance, HR, and planning system that can change as your needs change and evolve as the world evolves. To learn how Workday is helping mid-sized organizations embrace the future with confidence, visit us at Workday.com. We're speaking with Chad Cohn, CFO of Adaptive Biotechnologies. Chad, welcome. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. So, Chad, we're going to begin where, of course, we always do and find out a little bit about you by asking you to look back for us and share with us some of those experiences you feel help prepare you for a finance leadership role. What comes to mind for you? Well, it all started for me, I think, back in my very early days. Um, I grew up in Hong Kong. I lived there from 1975 to 87. 
My dad was a, an entrepreneur in the electronic toy space. He was making computer chess games. And so we moved there when I was about four to six months of age from Silicon Valley. He was an executive uh, in San Jose. And the story that my mom told me is that he took $5,000 in his wallet with him to Hong Kong. And he said, if it ever ran out, he'd come back to San Jose. But we ended up living there for 12 years. He ended up being there for about 25. And so Hong Kong was very much part of my ethos growing up. And I think the lessons that I learned from you know, living in Hong Kong for 12 years that helped me as a CFO were that of moving fast. Hong Kong's a very dynamic and vibrant place. And you know, traffic moves quickly, people talk quickly. Con there's a lot of action and bartering and commerce. And um, I think I can borrow from the speed of Hong Kong uh, a lot in terms of my uh, role as a growth company CFO and staying ahead of the traffic and thinking ahead but also just how to relate to people. You've got this multicultural thing in Hong Kong that's so fantastic. And you're constantly dealing with people from different cultures and with different temperaments. And I think that's made me a really um, good manager, frankly. So I borrow a lot of those early lessons in childhood from, from my days in Hong Kong. And uh, you know, post Hong Kong, came back to the United States, uh, ended up going to school in Los Angeles, then college at BU. And when I graduated Boston University in 97, Silicon Valley was on absolute fire. Uh, it was in the middle of the dot-com boom. I wanted to find a way to get there. And I took a summer internship at a semiconductor company and started applying to big four firms in the area because uh, I always knew that I wanted to be a CPA. So I ended up working at Ernst & Young in, in, in 98 after spending about a year as an analyst for a semiconductor company called Novellus Systems and joined the Ernst & Young office San Jose, where they really had their pick of the litter of, you know, the top 100 Silicon Valley firms and ended up auditing a lot of software, internet, biomedical device companies. And it was really through that experience that I got a lot of great perspective on what great companies look like, great growth companies look like through that time. And also, um, you know, really learned about, again, how to, how to manage people and you know, was able to work my way around a balance sheet and a PL. So all of those lessons I take with me as a CFO today. And then, and then the opportunity to actually become a CFO, frankly, was um, was was really unique. Uh, I was working at, at Zillow. I was uh, moving up the, the the ladder from you know sort of controller up to VP finance. And right before we made a decision to go public, I remember Spencer Raskoff coming into my office and saying you're going to be CFO and then walking out is about 20 second conversation. And I felt like I needed to go splash water on my face at that point and uh, really got the opportunity to build out that team to take us public. So that was, you know, sort of three sort of pivotal moments for me that helped me become a CFO. Yeah. I have to say that your, your experience at Zillow group, the years you spent there were certainly a trajectory for you as well as that company. How big was the company when you arrived and when you left? Any any uh, register of guests there for us? Yeah, so I was actually, I think, employee number 100. And I was the first full-time finance hire for Zillow back in uh, 2006, I believe. So, uh, and when I left, we had just finished the combination with Trulia, which was a $3.5 billion acquisition, where we probably took on a couple thousand employees so it was at least a couple of thousand employees at that point, if not larger. 
Yeah, and just to to underscore the timing here, you arrive, and as you you mentioned, you are a corporate controller, and five years later, or or, or less, really, you you enter the the CFO office. Is that right? And then you had a sort of a close to a five year tenure as CFO. How am I doing? Yeah, You're close. <laughs> that that that's about right. I spent uh, four years, sixteen earnings calls as a as CFO, acquired about ten companies, and raised you know, somewhere between a half a billion and a billion dollars of, of capital in the public markets for Zillow Group. And, you know, uh, interestingly, where did you, I, it, for the company to go public, where, again, you know, CFOs at times uh, have to acquire their skills internally as well as externally. I'm just curious how you acquired the communication skills, everything that's required to take a company public. Did you ever... <laughs> did you ever, you know, have mentors or how did you acquire those skills? I think they were cobbled together through my experience as both a, a finance and operator accountant um, and just sort of organically through my career. I've had just, you know, been lucky, probably more than good in terms of having um, been put in you know, various situations where I could cobble together all the experiences I needed to at least, you know, get to a level where I could, you know, really manage all the finance and accounting functions for a company. I think at the point that I was um, promoted to CFO, what was really lacking was the sort of front office um, sort of aspect of being CFO. Certainly, I had built a, a finance department and accounting department that could take the company public. But it was really that transition from a VP of finance to CFO that was a pretty big step where I had coaching from mentors around the company. I had formal media training, uh, didn't really have any IR experience. And so those were the those were, you know, some some challenging, I'd say, quarters as I was sort of bridging between VP finance and CFO. So, that's, you know, that was a six to probably a solid six to 12 month uh, sort of transition for me to start getting and feeling you know more comfortable in that role. You know, very often we hear that uh, the roadshow is sort of this formative experience for both people who get stretched along the way and begin become better communicators by the end. And uh, the, the company's story itself seems to evolve. Is there anything you could share if you look back and try to remember uh, that experience on that roadshow? Well, it was an absolute whirlwind, Jack. It's obviously, you know, that IPO roadshows, a traditional IPO roadshow takes place over the course of about eight days, you're flying around on private jets to meet a really tight timeline with all the investors that you need to um, to raise the capital and fill your book over that two week period. And there were three of us on that roadshow: Spencer Raskoff, our CEO, Rich Barton, who was our founder, a co-founder with Lloyd Frank, uh, and myself uh, as, as CFO. And obviously I'm not the star of the show. They wanna hear from the CEO and the founder about their vision and and how they're going to execute on the big opportunity for online real estate. And so I found myself early on in that roadshow really taking just the sort of technical accounting or technical financial uh, questions. And as I got more comfortable through, uh, I guess, the evolution of the, the time that I had on the, on the roadshow, I started feeling a lot more comfortable answering a lot of those questions that they were taking early on. So it was really quite a great experience for me where I was able to effectively handle almost uh, a lot of those questions that, you know, I didn't feel as comfortable with early on in the roadshow. And I was taking a lot of those sort of 
later on, you know, towards towards the end and as we were wrapping up our, our marketing. That's interesting that, that we have heard that from other finance leaders who tell us this was an evolutionary experience for them from the first day where there was such sort of a nervous energy about it to the last day. There was a great amount of confidence and understanding of how to how to communicate the, the business opportunity. So, you know, we're excited now to, to find out about this next opportunity, Adaptive Biotechnologies, um, which, uh, you know, you've been with. Uh, a number of years now. Uh, so here, here's another example of a company uh, that you've invested a portion of your career with. But tell us, tell us about Adaptive Biotechnologies. First, let's learn about the opportunity. What is this company about? What Adaptive does, I think better than anybody else, is we take our understandings of the adaptive immune system and apply them to diagnostics, disease and, and potential ther therapies. And we do that because 100% of our focus is on the adaptive immune system. So what we've built is a proprietary set of technologies and a platform in terms of chemistry and bioinformatics. And we use those technologies to help us really slice and dice and dissect the immune system. If I was talking to my grandma about this, I would say what we, we always knew that the immune system played a role in modulating disease. We just couldn't see it or understand why. But with our technology and the use of next generation sequencing, we've sort of unraveled all the mysteries and decoded the immune system in a way. And so we take those learnings and we've amassed this massive immune medicine database and now are applying those learnings in diagnostics and therapies. So far, we have a few FDA cleared diagnostics in the area of minimal residual disease for monitoring blood cancer and ALL, multiple myeloma and CLL. And we've also started this whole world and uh, suite of T-cell-based diagnostics um, in which we're using the immune system to, to diagnose disease. And uh, a lot of that came together through this partnership with Microsoft where they're providing machine learning and artificial intelligence resources on top of this database. And then in addition, we've got various therapeutic opportunities and a nice big sort of meaty partnership with uh, Roche Genentech in which we are creating cellular therapies in oncology, um, as well as in addition to that, doing some things in antibody discovery uh, as well. All right, well, uh, so a lot going on. Curious about you now, I, any hesitation here jumping into the world of biotech? You're in real estate. Uh, these are interchangeable. I don't think so. What? Tell us a little bit about how um, the opportunity came forward. Yeah, so I, I've got to say I, I was a very mediocre biology student back in high school. If I got a B, that would be uh, giving myself a lot of credit. Uh, I met Chad and Harlan Robbins on a um, – effectively a banking boondoggle up to Whistler about six, six or seven years ago. And we just happened to be put together in a car for four and a half hours. And I really just fell in love with the guys. Um, Harlan and I became very close friends. I got to know Chad um, professionally. And through that relationship, that organic relationship, they brought me onto the board as audit chair, where I sat for about uh, six months. I probably had a couple uh, board board meetings with the team. Um, I think they liked what they saw and they invited me to join uh, the team as a member of management. 
And I was at a point, a great point with Zillow where we had just uh, finished the Trulia acquisition and felt like I was ready for the next challenge. And in my mind, what, what better way to serve than moving into life sciences and, and, and helping um, create the next generation of medicines and diagnostics um, to help make people feel healthy and safer over time. Now, you've been there a number of years. I guess you've been there uh, more than five years now. Can you give us a sense of uh, what your priorities were when you first stepped into the role, uh, when you first arrived? Really, really simple. My mandate was get this company public ready and build a great team to endure all the challenges of moving us from being private to post-public. And so that was my mandate. And that started immediately. Actually, I hired a really great accountant on the first day that I started, um, a, a gentleman that I worked with uh, who was across the fence from me at Zillow, who was our auditor at Ernst & Young. And I picked him up on day one. So we both started on the same day and I knew I needed a great accountant to help me do this. And um, you know, Kyle's been fantastic. So it was really that simple, get this company public ready. And that doesn't happen overnight. You can't just snap your fingers. There's no easy button. And we started making the investment in the infrastructure, upgrading the team, and trying to build really a growth mentality, a service-oriented accounting and finance department that could serve the, the needs of a company with huge aspirations and a big TAM and opportunity set in front of it. Okay. So that team that you organized, can you give us some idea of how the team has expanded? Yeah. Uh, we, when, I, when I started, there were about five or six of us. Um, only one of those original members is with us to today, um, because we did, we did happen to raise the bar quite significantly. And right now the team is about 25 to 30, uh, you know, up until, uh, the IPO last year, I also managed human, human resources. And I handed that off to a very competent chief people officer last April. And right now I have effectively core finance, accounting, uh, business intelligence reporting up through me. Um, business analytics and the legal department as well. So it's about 25 to 30 of us. Can you share maybe a little bit of the decision-making as to when the right time to go public was for this company? Um, was there any, uh, you know, anyone who suggested we should grow to, uh, you know, uh, maybe a 30% more before we think of this, or is there any sort of debate like that? What were the uh, criteria for you? I think the criteria for me as a CFO, just given that we're so early stage and so many of our revenue lines are, are embryonic, right? They're, they're, they're small, but we have a huge opportunity set uh, in, in front of us in terms of everything that we think our platform can apply to in the diagnostic and therapeutic realm. But for me, it was really making sure that the strategy was locked down and that we weren't going to be pivoting constantly in the public eye, but that we could take something that we were really great at focusing on the adaptive immune system and really amplifying that through public company capital through the, through the public markets. And so my thoughts were, you know, let's lock down the strategy. Let's understand what this platform really is, how it can extend. And we did a lot of that through these partnerships with Microsoft and Genentech, which really set the, the legs on the stool, so to speak, with respect to our diagnostic opportunity set around T cell diagnostics and around thera therapeutics as well. So with that framework and structure in mind and great partners, we all felt that it was time to try to take this company out, um, just given the huge opportunity in, in front of us. 
Well, the partnerships are interesting. Can you maybe provide a little background on those, how those came to be? Absolutely. Well, the relationship with with Microsoft um, really came through a number of different channels, board and and management, and really started um, out of this concept that Harlan had about the ability to uh, use um, your immune system and specifically your T cells to diagnose disease. But we know we needed an incredible amount of machine learning and computer resources to be able to do that. And organically investing in the business would have taken a lot of time and would not have been without risk. So finding ourselves a great partner that already had significant resources in machine learning and AI uh, at scale and who had a real interest in um, the work that we were doing at Adaptive was really important. So as you know, Microsoft is a massive company and in a sense, they take a tax out of everybody's life, right? Because you're using Microsoft Word or Microsoft Excel or or Outlook. Um, You might even have an Xbox at home, right? But like everybody in some way to to some level is getting taxed by Microsoft already. And the way they think about that cloud, or at least the way I think about their cloud is that that's just another tax um, on the system. And what they thought would be great for, for, for Microsoft was to find themselves a beachhead into biotechnology, into life sciences, and into, you know, next generation sequencing and all the various opportunities that come from that. And adaptive happened to be that opportunity to be that beachhead in this big area of genomics for them. And we were at the same time looking for those resources that we could stand up very, very quickly. And it was uh, through conversations um, at various levels between the board and the management team, we were able to pull together what we thought was a very interesting collaboration with Microsoft, both in migrating all of our cloud computing onto uh, Azure from AWS, two was using um, their their resources uh, in machine learning to help you know, immediately um, impact the work that we were doing in, in future uh, T-cell diagnostics. And then uh, the third part of that relationship was really the equity financing um, that they put into Adaptive right before we we went public. And so it was really a three-part agreement with, with Microsoft. And that was in the 20, late 2017, uh, 2018 timeframe. And then it, during the sort of 2018 to 2019 timeframe is really when that Genentech relationship started to uh, evolve where we were looking for a way to partner up with a great commercial entity where we thought we had great assets, potential therapeutic assets in oncology. And um, and all of that was sort of solidified in, in sort of late 2018, you know, early 2019, right before we went public. Well, thank you. That certainly provides some insight on those uh, strategic relationships. Let's jump forward and ask you a little more about your day-to-day today. And uh, what are those numbers that you're looking at first thing in the morning? What are you really uh, paying attention to these days? I look at a number of things. Obviously, um, cash is king. We've raised uh, about $600 million in in capital through our IPO, uh, as well as through a recent follow-on offering. So I I look at our cash, uh, you know, maybe not daily, but very, very frequently 
because allocating capital for a company at this stage is really important. So I need to understand what's happening with our capital and making sure it's being deployed appropriately to those big opportunity sets. I, one, one huge area of investment that I've made at the company is in business intelligence and business analytics, where we have instrumented so many different areas of the business to really set ourselves up as a service center for all the various functions and departments around the company. So it's not just me looking at stuff, it's everybody's got this ability and transparency into all the data that's sort of running our business and is behind the scenes. And I've created effectively with the, with the team underneath me, great analysts and um, you know, fantastic technology and infrastructure, you know, leveraging a lot of uh, data analytic um, reporting like Tableau software, for example, where we've created these cockpit type views for uh, our operations team, for customer service, for our commercial teams. And so I'll glance at those during the day just to make sure that nothing's out of trend. Or if I start to see something interesting, I'll, I'll raise a flag, good or bad, uh, for the team. and I'll fire off some questions. But really, it's this investment that we've made and I'll continue to make even more heavily in 21 related to instrumenting the business, making sure we understand our trends, our KPIs, and all our metrics, whether they're top line or below the line. Uh, it could be volume-related, ASP, um, it could be areas related to you know downtime in the lab, all, all sorts of different metrics, but that we continue to invest in providing that level of service and that level of visibility across the company. Uh, very, very, it's a very important area of investment that I, I plan to amplify in, in the, the coming months and years. Could you give us maybe an example of a business dynamic that you have sought to better expose and measure? And it could be something that you, one part of the organization, you wanted them to pay closer attention to it. So you've dedicated resources. Or I would an say that there are a lot of areas of the business that need to be exposed to folks that can actually help improve, uh, you know, in terms of operational excellence. I would say the one area that we all spend a lot of time thinking about is really our turnaround time. You know, what is the time it takes for us to get a sample in the door? from a sick patient and turn around a result. And so we put a lot of emphasis on looking at the ability to contract that amount of time and report out diagnostics faster. So um, that's a huge opportunity for us from a, for, in order to make sure that we understand like all the pieces that are needed along the way to deliver that result. And to the extent that we're not seeing turnaround times that um, are, you know, appropriately reflecting what we think the lab is set up to accomplish, then we're trying to diagnose issues with that turnaround time for those customers. Because we have a lot of patients that are very, very sick and are relying on adaptive to understand the disposition of their, their testing. And the, the faster we can get those results back to them, the, the quicker that physicians can make medical decisions. Now, we want to ask you about the response to the pandemic and if there were some steps that you've taken clearly. And uh, again, uh, I'm sure you're you're concerned about cash and what have you. But what would you share with us about uh, the adaptives biotech's response to the to the pandemic? First of all, the, the immune system, the reason we focus on the immune system in the way we do with the platform that we've created is that it looks at every disease the same way. We don't have to stand up a different set of technologies or a different workflow or a different set of chemistries to evaluate a new disease. 
the adaptive immune system looks at every disease, infectious diseases, uh, cancer, autoimmune, effectively the same way. So we apply the same technology that we have from, from a, effectively a research setting, which we help develop tools for researchers, researchers, biopharma and academic clients, you know, effectively to this disease. And part of our, um, part of our opportunity set relates to creating this whole class of T cell diagnostics that really, um, can evaluate disease sort of irrespective of what the disease actually is. And so COVID gave us an opportunity in a very short period of time to really generate a lot of learnings around how to get everything put together, all the pieces put together from initial workflow all the way out to reading um, a, uh, a, a report on the, the disease itself and be able to see those T cell receptors that map back to those antigens that are directly related to the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And because we were able to put all those pieces very quickly, because all of this was happening over a short contracted period of time, the learnings for us are essentially scalable onto other diseases in the future. So from that perspective, it's helped us stand up a lot of the infrastructure we need to pursue future opportunities. At the same time, we're also, as, as, as CFO, um, really concerned about what the impact of this pandemic was going to be on our balance sheet and our financials. Um, none of us have been through a pandemic before, um, but the board sort of turned to finance to say, hey, how, do, how should we understand this? What are the various scenarios that we might encounter over the next 6, 12, 18, or 24 months, depending on how long this pandemic is with us? And uh, as a bit of a river guide through the, um, you know, as a bit of a river guide to, 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 the, um, to the scenarios, I worked with my team to put together a number of different uh, ways of looking at the potential impact on our revenues and our, and our bottom line. So we evaluated it from a financial perspective. We think it also potentially helped us um, pull together a lot of that infrastructure, those learnings to apply to future diseases. And while at the same time, trying to make sure that we were doing everything we can to protect the health and safety of our employees. We took all of our essential workers uh, and tried to protect them through different shifts um, and took all our non-essential workers and said, hey, could you stand up those services uh, from home, like finance and accounting and legal? These are things that we stood up very quickly from home offices. And again, to protect the ability to process samples for very sick patients and at the same time, continue to incubate innovation in our lab. Well, as we just did with you, Chad, we've been speaking to finance leaders about uh, the workforce and about their people. Uh, the current environment has made uh, the workforce top of mind for many of them. And more and more are telling us the company's people are their, their most valuable asset. So we've begun asking, how are you measuring that asset? And uh, do your lines of sight extend into the workforce the way you would like? Can you reflect on that a little bit for us? Not so different than many other companies' P&Ls, our employees and payroll and the costs of resourcing headcount is a significant component of our P&L. It's probably 40 to 50%. So looking to make sure that you know, we have everything we need to enable our employees to be appropriately trained and onboarded, which is especially difficult during a time where you're onboarding employees 
in a virtual environment and making sure that they understand how their roles can effectively help the company achieve its greater opportunity set and add value is super important. So there's a lot of emphasis, not only on making sure that we are competitive in the marketplace for great employees, and we're trying to get the best employees that we can to reach, you know, significantly high bars, not only areas of, of science and, and innovation and, and sales, but in back office functions as well in finance and accounting and, and human resources and making sure that they have an understanding of where their careers can lead to and what this means for them if the company's successful as well. Where, what does their career plan look like? What sort of leadership and management opportunities are available to them? So we have a very, I would say, holistic um, program when it comes to bringing on employees. They are a significant component of our P&L. They're half our costs directly, probably indirectly, they're probably 80 to 90% of our costs. Um, so making sure that we incubate employees, incubate those that come on the team and make sure they're appropriately positioned in the company for success is really important for me personally. When I interview a potential member of the finance team, I'm not asking myself, is this senior accountant, a great senior accountant for today? I'm asking myself, is this senior accountant going to be a great manager or controller in five years from now, because this company is going to continue to grow and scale and we're going to need future leaders. So that's the bar that I want to hit is understanding how this person is going to lead me uh, to believe that they can grow and scale as this company grows and scale at an asymptotic rate over the next few years. Well, we're up to our uh, finance strategic moment question. And again, we're this is where we ask you uh, to identify and share an experience from your finance career uh, where your lines of sight allowed you uh, to identify an opportunity, a risk, and uh, you respond to it. Anything come to mind when we ask for a finance strategic moment? So part, part of my job as a CFO um, is not only to allocate capital appropriately to big opportunities, but also look out for icebergs. And um, I'm... I'm I'm, I'm constantly scanning the horizon for, you know, where's the tip of the iceberg. So uh, a strategic moment for me um, that comes to mind probably relates back to uh, post acquisition implementation and integration with Trulia, where we had this beautiful, um, you know, pages and pages of a beautiful, beautifully laid out plan to integrate their finance and accounting department with ours over a period of about 90 to 120 days. And we had put on the accounting and finance employees uh, in, in San Francisco, the Trulia team, pretty healthy uh, retention bonuses as well to help ensure that we could get through that time and that we wouldn't lose the brain trust, the knowledge base, all the IQ uh, and, and all the processes and workflow that help support their operations down there from a, from a finance perspective. Well, about you know, 20, 30 days into the acquisition, post-acquisition, we saw that there were people that were leaving uh, from that finance team. The retention bonuses, albeit very, very healthy and robust, uh, were offset by a very frothy uh, employment market in, in San Francisco and even larger sign-on bonuses that we were having trouble competing with. And so I felt like I got hit, hit over the head with a sledgehammer one morning, but I had this aha sort of wake up moment where I was like, we're gonna lose all that IQ and all that knowledge base 
And I just saw a ton of risk coming with our ability to sort of cut over financials to Seattle and make sure that we had continuity um, that would allow us to continue to maintain the integrity, financial integrity in our, in our books and records. And so I woke up one morning, called my controller in a bit of a, in a sweat and a panic and said, hey, we got to get this done a lot faster because I, I, I think I see the program playing out and it's not going to be pretty. So we took a, a very beautiful 90 to 120 day plan, ripped it up. And I said, we're going to do this now. <laughs> and so we effectively you know, looked at um, a lot of those long pole items uh, that would have taken us you know, a couple you know, months, two to three months to, to execute on and started thinking about ways to sort of rein them in a lot faster, which, which we did. And, and, and thank goodness we all, we all did. Um, and I was able to apply that to, to adaptive in a sense, because right after I, I joined adaptive, um, I, uh, had, uh, an acquisition that adaptive had made, uh, in, in the, in the months beforehand with a company called Sequenta down in the Bay area and who also had competing intellectual property, great company that we had just acquired for a couple hundred million dollars. But in the same way, um, they had a finance team that was down South and coming fresh off of the truly integration. I said, we just can't let them sort of sit like that in this somewhat of a dormant state. Let's rapidly and aggressively integrate and make sure we bring all those learnings and all those operations up to Seattle and really extract the synergies that were part of the calculus as well for, for making that acquisition. When we return, CFO Chad Cohn enters the mentoring round. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. We always like to ask you once more to look back and think about when you first became a CFO for the very first time. I imagine this was at Zillow. But uh, you stepped into the CFO office. If you could go back in time and just give yourself a piece of advice that first week, that first quarter, uh, the early days of your CFO career, what would it be? I think it would be, don't be the phenotypical Scrooge McDuck CFO. Don't walk around canning, counting your trash and, and saying no to every idea that you hear. It's really easy to crap on an idea. It really is. It doesn't take a lot of brain power to say no to something. Um, so for me, it was, you know, how, how do I say yes? How do I be that growth company CFO? How do I help my business partners really see around the corner, figure out how to allocate capital? How do I get out of the way of the business, frankly, at this point where we're trying to really grow and put a rocket on the moon? How do I service my clients by by being a true partner and not saying no. So don't be that Scrooge McDuck. Don't be the CFO of the 1960s and 70s that everybody was scared of talking to. Be a, be a, be a great business partner. Figure out a way to help the company move, remove roadblocks. Um, but when you say no, it means no. 
right? And, and use that no sparingly. Um, because if, if I say no, it's generally because there's a really bad answer somewhere. <laughs> now, we'd like to ask our guests to look a little bit on the personal side, reflect a little for us, uh, and wonder if there's a habit or something that you've done over time, a part of your daily routine uh, on the personal side that you think has paid dividends on the professional side. Is there something that you do every day or during the course of the week? I spend a lot of time staring at my calendar <laughs> for good or for bad. Um, I, I want to make sure I'm allocating my time appropriately. Uh, I, I work very closely with my, my admin Macy to make sure that um, I'm accessible, uh, probably overly accessible, open door policy. But at the same time, that's a double-edged sword because I can find myself overbooked in meetings or spending too much time in a meeting. So I'll look at you know the calendar over the next week or two and say, does this meeting really need to be an hour? Can you press on the, um, the person that's asking for my time and see if we can contract that into a half an hour. Um, I don't really need to be in that meeting. I already see there's five other teammates that are extremely competent. It's got my controller. I've got a senior analyst in that meeting. I don't really need to be there. It's not something that rises you know, to, to the level that I think I need to spend some time in, in that meeting. You've got a, a lot of input from my team, from, from very competent professionals. So I, I'm looking at my calendar, make sure I'm, I'm allocating time appropriately. I'm blocking out time so I can sit back and think a little more strategically uh, about the business and, and where we're going and to have time that's available as other things come up over the course of the week. So I, I like to get ahead of my calendar. Now, let me ask you in your per per personal life on weekends, are you the same way? <laughs> <laughs> on weekends, I like to turn off um, everything and sort of spend time with my family. I, I play guitar. I like to work out, jump on my motorcycle and I just think it would be hard to to stop being so disciplined in terms of time. So I, I while I, I understand what you're saying that you're probably uh, more laid back uh, as a finance leader, it's hard to escape this notion of time economy um, and, and using it wisely because you a weekend's a weekend. Yeah, right? a weekend uh, is a weekend. Yeah. So I, I work hard and play hard, Jack. So when if I during the week I'm packing my my daily schedule with, with meetings, uh, with my team, business, uh, business reviews, that sort of thing. The weekends I'm playing hard with, with my family and kids. Okay. Is there a book you'd recommend to aspiring finance leaders? There's a couple, but I think the one that I've really enjoyed reading a few years ago, there's a book by Brad Feld called Venture Deals. And to me, it felt like the Bible for any CEO or CFO at a private company that's raising private capital. Uh, private venture capital. And I really spent a lot of time, you know, referencing that book. Um, I, I'm on a, a board. I'm, I'm an advisor to a number of, of venture capital backed companies. And it's, it's a great sort of reference guide uh, for me and reminds me of some of the various provisions in, in various private financing rounds. And it's very well written. It's easy to move through. And I think can help place some of that advantage, you know, the, the VCs are extremely advantaged in their knowledge of the, of these deals, just having done so many. But if there's a book, I would say that every CEO or CFO, private company, uh, CEO, CFO should have on the desk. It's probably Venture Deals by Brad Bell. Well, wonderful. Uh, for whatever reason, we haven't had it before. So it's always uh, a great uh, episode when we get a new selection for us. So thank you for that. We are up to our final question where we finally ask you to look forward 
and share with us your priorities as a finance leader over the next 12 months, not the last 12 months, the next 12 months, what, what would come to mind for you? For me, it's all about being that service center to the team. And the way I can add the most value is really helping my team see around the corner. We are growing at a very fast clip uh, at Adaptive. We have huge growth plans and huge opportunities. And so continuing to instrument the business with reporting and analytics and business intelligence and translating all of that into operational excellence is really important. So I really wanna make continue to make significant investments in our uh, BI and BA business analytics uh, resources next year. Make sure we have the smartest folks really working hand in hand with our operational leaders around the company. Chad Cohn, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Thanks, Jack. It was great, great being with you. And uh, thanks for having me on. Hello, listeners. Do us a favor. Be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts, or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter, featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.